namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa uttandhamang sankhanamasam So today is uh, tomorrow's Thanksgiving or today? Sometime. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Harvest moon, full moon. Pavarna and Davasa. Um, so we're, we're embedded in these various cultural formats. And these are very important for human existence because we are not just <clears throat> isolated entities floating around in our thoughts. We're actually very much embedded in our relationships. We're embedded in nature. These bodies are natural bodies. They feel the natural elements. And to be in a culture that has thanksgiving in it is, is obviously very, very important. To be in a culture that has uh, moral principles and aspirations as, such as our monastic culture this is a very, very helpful um, vehicle for our journey through life. And so for us as monastics, we've just finished a three-month period of, of being together, um, contemplating our, our Vinaya, our, our rule, uh, supporting each other in this practice. So it's been a very, uh, very fruitful time, I think, for all of us. And so... Again, we could not do this without the support of the lay people. So we all have a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving. So these two cultural things coming together is quite nice. I often think of Katina, actually, which comes in this following month as a kind of harvest festival, a time of, of celebrating the end of Asa and celebrating our shared values, uh, our sense of, of generosity, moral commitment. And, and that is part, that's what, that's what we would say is the vehicle that we use in Buddhism, these different um, attitudes of, of relationship, these different um, ways of connecting to each other, which are wholesome. So a monastery isn't a kind of competitive situation. Sure, we might have competitive urges and we compare each other, but there isn't like... A, There's no election for the boss, so. and and the boss gets the same amount of food as everyone else. And I do have a nice chair, actually. A nice chair. But the, the the values are. It's interesting. There, there's shared values. So the sharing is egalitarian. You share the same robes and the resources that are given, and yet we live within a hierarchy. But the hierarchy is not based on um, it's not like a management hierarchy it's not that it's more a hierarchy based upon elders in the order and a respect for those who are senior who have gone forth and so there's a tremendous respect in, in Buddhist monasticism for uh, the amount of time one has been in the order and that is irrespective of personality which is I think really really quite a, a wonderful cultural thing where 
personality, charisma, these things which popular culture emphasizes a lot and, and upholds a lot, uh, these aren't that terribly important. They are, as human beings, we're attracted by charisma, but in our, in our monastic order, we try to go beyond the superficial, it's not necessarily superficial, but the presentation of a personality to more the deeper, the commitment that one has had for long, long periods of time, which isn't a matter of personality, it's a matter of perseverance, probably. Um, so, like, when I, in, during the, uh, during the rain, rains retreat, the, the Vasa, as we say, in Nepali, uh, Ajahn Chah would take a whole busload of monks. He knew the man who owned the bus company. Uh, so a whole busload of monks would uh, go to the local Warin and Ubon and pay respects to maybe four or five senior monks and go an afternoon and pay. And Ajahn Chah uh, was junior to these uh, respected elders. His charisma was very powerful and his insights were very powerful. Um, but he would always defer to the to the seniority of, of the elder. And it was a beautiful example for us to see how our teacher, who was, we felt, very accomplished, and uh, then some of the administrative monks who would probably personally didn't feel that were that accomplished, uh, that didn't really matter. Our, our, own, our own perceptions of them as accomplished or not, accomplished or uh, charismatic or not, that wasn't what it was about. It's about humility and, and deference to someone who's senior, and Ajahn Chah would just do it so very, very beautifully. Um, so that, that, that sense of, of seniority which we try to encourage here is, is, is uh, one of humility, one of gratitude, irrespective of personality. This is quite, quite a lovely, lovely kind of thing. Um, I was, during this class, I was thinking a lot about the word samasamadhi, which is in the, uh, I don't know if all of you are aware, the, the kind of core teaching of, of Theravada Buddhism is the Four Noble Truths. And if you are interested in Theravada, that would be a very important teaching to um, formally study and, and, and get your head around the, the basic concepts of the Four Noble Truths, because Intellectually, it's a very good framework, and um, to have a consistent framework for your spiritual life is, is important because then a lot of the doubts which come through intellect, and we have self-doubt as an emotion, that's different, but the intellectual doubts that we have uh, are, are very much answered by a good intellectual structure, and there are many structures which you could use, but this one is in Theravada quite central, quite important. So there is a place for study. We're not a, uh, we're not a study monastery per se, we study these things ourselves, but um, so we don't formally lay out these things uh, for lay people. We don't have like courses which are based on that. We would retreats and so on. So it's really up to lay people to study that themselves. Uh, but the Four Noble Truths is a, is a really interesting structure of contemplation because it as you know, it begins with that the basic um, problem of being human is that we suffer. Um, that as human beings, although we may 
maybe kind of jovial on the outside, you scratch a bit and everyone's, everyone's got something. Some loss, some, some disappointment, uh, some obsessive fear in the mind, arrogance or whatever it might be. And, and so the, the, the genius of the, the Buddha is that he asks us to connect to suffering. Now, connection is a thing a lot about that. What, in the way the teaching is laid out, it says suffering must be understood. And suffering is any, any sense of lack, any sense of inadequacy, any sense of, of a lack of fullness in this present moment. So it doesn't have to be suffering in a, at a grand level, like you have uh, some uh, um, deep loss that you're dealing with. It could be that, but it could be just a sense of being bored just a sense of feeling inadequate. Any, any sense of lack is, is, is uh, encouraged to be understood. And so how do you understand something? It's, it's important. You know, when you go out and you look at the harvest moon, or you go out in the middle of a, of a clear night in the winter here, any clear night, go, if there's no moon, and the stars are spectacular, the Milky Way, um, the... It's just the array of light up there, and you maybe go out in the middle of the night and just look up, and your mind stops. Beauty does that. A beautiful maple tree will do that. Um, and the mind stops, and it's connected. It's connected to the, the skyscape, the, uh, all the stars. Why is it connected? Because it's not really doing anything about it. And it's just in, in touch with it in a way which is beyond thought. You start thinking maybe, oh, it's really beautiful, uh, maybe if you take a picture or something, you, know, you start thinking like that, but then you've lost connection because you're making comments on it, which isn't wrong, which isn't wrong. But what is it that, like beauty, how it can do that, where it can just arrest the mind, just stop the mind. Now actually that's the same approach to suffering which we're trying to encourage. That's very hard to do. Because when suffering arises, we seek an object to um, alleviate it. So there's some suffering which we can't alleviate. We're hungry, we eat, we're cold, we put on a sweater, we're lonely, we phone a friend. So there's nothing wrong with that. But inevitably, um, the objective world is, is disappointing because it's, it's made that way, it's made to change. It's not bad, it's not wrong. But this continual disappointment that we might feel, or frustration, or sense of loss, or whatever it might be, um, if we are always pursuing objects to gratify that, then we can never be peaceful, because objects change in character, change in structure, they're dependent on other things. When their configuration changes in such a way that it's not to our liking, we're back into dissatisfaction. So at some point, we all realize that, okay, there are things I can do to alleviate suffering. I don't want to live a life of, of, of um, self-mortification. That's not the point of it. But there's also something about the objective world which is um, un unreliable, isn't it? Can't rely upon. And the more you see that, the more that tendency to go out into the objective world become, becomes untenable. You begin to question that. Is that really? Is it really the only way to distraction or doing or being something else? And this sense of like connecting 
to the discontent you feel is it's not a it's not a uh, uh, an intellectual thing. It's a more like a visceral, um, uh, non non commentary on the way things are. You awaken to 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 suffering to really understand it. To understand something, you have to somehow um, engage it in a in a way where you're not trying to get rid of it or comment on it or analyze it. You're just totally with it, and and that's hard to do because the whole thing about the, the suffering we experience is we're trying to get away from it. So we either blame ourselves, we blame someone else, we distract, we eat food, we watch Netflix. No, I don't watch Netflix. Maybe you watch Netflix or whatever, you know. So there's different ways of operating, which again, as I was saying this afternoon, that's not immoral, it's not wrong. But what is the spiritual life? What is that? I mean, the spiritual life for, for us as Buddhists is not it's not an objective experience because all objective experiences changes and this is very important in, in a, a Buddhist understanding of things it's not wrong objective experience isn't wrong but it's limited and then once you see that limitation of objective experience and by, by objects I mean emotions and thoughts as well as iPhones and clocks and, and ice cream you know all, all of those are objects in awareness and once you see that then you understand what renunciation is. Renunciation is giving up finding uh, fulfillment in an object, but looking back at awareness itself. That's what renunciation really is about. It's not about shaving your head and putting on a robe. This is symbolic. But one can uh, have the symbols and, and be very foolish too. That's entirely possible and it happens all the time. So it's not so much about that. It's this basic perspective that in the objective world, I can find happiness, sure, but I will also find sh sorrow, yes. Uh, but where's peace really lie? Where's true fulfillment lie? And 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 the question goes back to the heart itself, awareness itself. That in awareness of change, you begin to see there's something which is unchanging. This is deep peace in the silence of the mind. You go look at the stars in the middle of the night. And your mind stops, and there's that deep peace. That deep, deep, deep peace is it's not really dependent on the stars. It's just the stars stopped your mind for a second. So, in the contemplation of discontent, what we're trying to do is understand it, stand under it, feel it, know it fully. And once we begin to do that, we can begin to discern that that the the structure of of suffering is an internal matter. There's physical suffering. We all know, like you can, you can feel like you can feel a headache. Right? You feel the headache, and you can be at peace with the headache, and and still take Tylenol, whatever you like. Or you can worry about a headache, you know, the, the mental suffering that we create around that. And it's okay to worry. It's okay to do that. But the mental suffering we create around the world is this, is the kind of thing we're trying to notice. So if I feel um, bored, or, or lonely, or something like that, that's an object in awareness. Now if I, if I can witness that loneliness, or a sense of loss, or grief, or self-doubt, or mistrust as an object in awareness and see that it changes, I begin to take refuge in awareness knowing change, and that's where the peace lies. 
And this is wonderful, where you can actually notice something like boredom come up or loneliness come up, and, and you just you just make a decision. <coughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna witness this now as something that arises and ceases. Now it doesn't cease right away, but you begin to just abide with it as as an experience. And your desire mind doesn't want it. And you see, the loneliness isn't the problem. The fear isn't the problem. It's the desire not to have that. That's the problem. And you see, the problem of suffering is not the content. It's the desire to have content a certain way. And content cannot be the same way all the time. It changes from, from uh, pleasant to unpleasant. It's always moving. And so you, 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 might, you might experience fear, anxiety, and you do everything you can to alleviate the circumstances of fear and anxiety, it still comes up, and you witness it, and then you say, oh, it's not the fear and anxiety that's a problem, it's the desire, the desire not to have the fear. And that's pretty natural, there's nothing wrong with that, pretty natural. And then as you witness the desire, you say, well, fear is okay, and you begin to know fear as fear, just like you know the stars as the stars. And as you know fear is fear, it no longer has power over you. It still manifests as something unpleasant, like a, like a toothache. It still comes up into consciousness, but you no longer have the same relationship to it, because you know it's just an object coming in. Not just an object, I don't want to trivialize it, it can be very powerful. But it is an object, and the awareness is not an object. Awareness is not dependent on the fear. <coughs> awareness knows fear, it's changing. And begin to adopt that stance more and more and you begin to see the end of suffering because there's the end of fear the end of desire so the desire comes up you feel it you witness it it's unpleasant that's gone you begin to see the problem is the desire not the fear and this is a wonderful insight because then you see well no matter what i'm afraid of i can always look at desire so going back to 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 uh, the samasamadhi, um, so in in the in the formulation of the four noble truths, we are given what's called the uh, noble eightfold path, and in it it's usually described as sama uh, samasamasama right 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 understanding uh, right thinking, and in it is is the bit about meditation right concentration is how it's Translated usually in um, in Western texts, but uh, for some time now, I think that's not a very good translation because I think the Thais have a much better translation for samasamadhi, and they translate it as collective or composed mind, and and uh, uh, a mind which is committed to the present moment. So there's a kind of sense of commitment to the present moment, and but a collected or composed sense. Now, when I use the word myself, if I use the word concentration, so I concentrate a lot in doing woodwork, you know, using a, a router or a chisel, and I have a grain of wood, and I have precision of measurement, so on and so forth, I, I concentrate on that to get a, a, a decent job. And But in that concentration, I can be quite tense. You know, my, my body can be tense, if I'm not aware. Uh, and I can come out of that concentration of my mind. It's not necessarily composed. Whereas composure of mind, collectedness of mind, uh, the, the difference for me is concentration tends to be about the object. 
the piece of wood I'm cutting, the machine I'm working with, uh, whatever it is. So it's about the object and getting that objective experience right. But composure and collectedness and commitment to the present moment is more about the mind. Now, when I'm, when I'm concentrating on a piece of wood, I'm committed to the piece of wood. Okay, so commitment is, is important. And the commitment here is the present moment. So what we're always encouraging in any, in any spiritual life is, is abandoning the past and the future really learning to uh, open up or be aware of the present moment. And that's a, a constant refrain, of course, that you hear throughout spiritual disciplines is, awaken now, Ramdas says, be here now, or his, I'm still here now, I think now, that he's had a stroke. Um, and and that's, that's almost a, a, that's a, an ad, it's like a cliche, isn't it? But it's very hard, actually, to commit to the present moment. And it is a commitment. Because what we often do is, if you, if you start to observe the way consciousness or the objects of consciousness work, so much of time is past and present, uh, past and future, past and future, past and future. And to make a commitment to the present moment is not to suppress that, but it's to make an intention. And this is, this is the idea of right intention or right thought. You intend to awaken to the present moment. That's a huge step in the spiritual life. Huge. Huge. It's really hard to do. Um, so, but once you start to make that intention, not suppressing thoughts of the past or future, you start to make that intention, you begin to awaken to the thinking mind, always analyze, uh, worried about the future or regretting the past, or whatever it might be with the past, replaying uh, or anticipating this movement back and forth, back and forth, and very little time is actually spent in the present moment until there's danger or fear or excitement. So we like the present moment, and that's why people like dangerous and exciting things, because it, they absorb into the present moment. But when it's not extreme, then the mind just tends to go into habitual past, future, past, future. So training the mind uh, in, in right presence, I would say, rather than right concentration, that's the attitude that needs to be uh, encouraged all the time. And I say encouraged rather than um, a kind of inner tyranny. Oh, there you go again. You're thinking about that. That doesn't work because that's violent. This isn't violent. It's it's considered from wisdom. You say, yeah, if 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 there is a spiritual dimension to life, that spiritual dimension to life must be always here and now. And this is the way Buddhism talks about it. In Buddhism, we say there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed, the deathless, not a matter of time. Right? And if there is something transcendent and imminent, uh, what could that be? Where is it? Well, you'd have to, you'd have to be present and observe. So that uh, is a constant refrain we have, whether it's we're doing manual work, or whether we're eating, or we're talking with each other, or, or whatever we're doing, so it's awaken, awaken, awaken to the here and now. How is it now? It's like this. Be here now, knowing. Now is the knowing. So that's a... That's, as I say, that, that's a huge piece in the spiritual life. Now, I can do that with concentration. You know, I can make a commitment to uh, cutting a piece of wood, routing a, a mortise uh, for some furniture, something like that. But then that concentration isn't necessarily what we mean by, by, by samasamadhi, I think. I would say it's more like a, a sense of collectedness, a sense of composure about the mind, 
And in it, in it, is a sense of bodily ease and mental ease. This is what we're looking at. And uh, if you're concentrating on something like the breath and you're just trying to hold on to some aspect of the breath, your body could be quite tense. You might even hold on to that aspect of breath, like maybe at your nostrils. You could walk away from it and just have the same old garbage coming up in your mind. So, so and, and Ajahn Chah would warn against this. He would, he would say, you know, you, could, you might be able to concentrate for an hour and, and keep everything at bay, but then as soon as you put you as soon as you let go of that object, all your habits would come up again. And he compared it to a and this is a very famous simile, he compared it to a rock which you put on the grass, and then the the rock suppresses the grass, but when you take the rock off, the grass grows again. So he compared that kind of concentration to be ineffective. And he, and he would say that the people who were very good at that, it, it was kind of dangerous, because they could blank out. In fact, people can blank everything out, but then they have no wisdom. And still, uh, there was a fellow in, in Montreal I met who could do uh, the sweeping technique, and he was, he was very refined, and he could do it for two hours without, without a thought, but he had no wisdom. So he could suppress things, he could hold on. And that's what concentration does. And it's necessary. If you're, if you're using a tool or whatever, concentration is necessary. But somehow samadhi, I think I would take more from the Thai perspective. And, and I would say it is more a sense of a collectedness, composure. And in that, when you're, when, you're, when you're doing something like that, you can be with the breath. You're feeling the breath go in and go out. But you're also aware of your body. You're aware of your, like your eyes. Are your eyes really focused? Like is your eyes really tense? All right, your eyes relaxed. Your, your belly, your belly is it is it relaxed? Is it open? What's happening with the shoulders? So in the in the awareness of the breath, it's not just about the object of of, of focus, as it were. It's a kind of holistic relationship to your whole body. How is your body feeling? And if it's like collapsing over. You need more energy if you're too rigid. Whatever you're, you're, you're exploring that. So it's like an exploration of body and mind, and and like a, a mind which is 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 trying to get some experience, some samadhi experience. It's a mind which is unhappy, a mind which is trying to acquire an experience you had yesterday. If you have a, all of us have had that where you've had a really good meditation. You know your your experience has been very very blissful or very peaceful and then you try to repeat that and it's very frustrating isn't it if you're really frustrated why because the mind is not happy because it's looking for something and yet the third noble truth is you're abandoning desire you're letting go of desire because the desire is the problem so to actually contemplate that uh, to contemplate that as you're meditating it's non-desire non-becoming, non-anticipation. So we use a lot of the non-words in meditation. Non-becoming. If you put that word into your mind, if you're contemplative, that word is a kind of mirror to, to your own energies and efforts. So if you're like trying to get something that you had or that you've read about, that's very common, you see that, oh, that's tension. That's not happy. It's tension in the body, tension in the mind. And she continues to say what letting go means. Letting go or letting be, but still be, have a commitment to the present moment. 
And so the sense of, and this is the area of what we call piti sukha in, in the description of meditation, where the mind and body begin to have a sense of ease and happiness. Not because you're, you're getting some that, you're getting this result, but because you're letting go of the desire to become. You're letting go of the resistance to pain. You're letting go of resistance to whatever's coming up. You have a sense of compassion and openness. You're aware of your body. So it's quite a project. It's quite a project. Whereas if one is just thinking it's about concentration on the breath and suppressing everything else, I suggest that won't be successful because the result will be dependent on you holding on to the object of awareness. And then as soon as that you can't hold on anymore, so it's interesting how people will uh, be doing concentration practice and they'll get angry when someone coughs. Right? And the classic is when they're doing compassion meditation and getting really compassionate and they hate someone who sneezed. <laughs> I've seen that. We all do people shut up. Quit breathing. And that's just trying to concentrate and get something called compassion as a kind of product. But we're not trying to get a product here. We're, we're just seeing that there are factors of, of attention, present moment, ways of being with the breath, relaxed in body, non-desire, non-becoming, non-aversion. And these nons are very helpful. They're very, very helpful because our attitudes, when, 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 we, when we meditate, our attitudes are very much to get something or get rid of something. So thought. Thought is a very classic one where the sense of, you know, you, you, you'll be meditating and then you're thinking about going home or whatever, uh, and then as soon as you notice that the thought's there, you try to get rid of it. That won't work. It'll make you think more. Or you won't do anything. you just keep thinking. But you can awaken to an end of a thought. How do you do that? Well, you notice the end of a thought. And, 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 and people don't do that. As soon as they notice their thinking, then they focus on their object of awareness to get rid of thought. But that's desire again. That's suppression again. Whereas if you're, if you're planning what you're going to do tomorrow, and you notice, and you say planning feels this way, you're awake. You're not saying you shouldn't think, but also you're not buying into it. And you're finding a kind of middle ground. So planning... And then you, yeah, oh, yeah. Or you even you, you say, say deliberately, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to the dentist tomorrow, and you stop. Oh, there's the silence. There's the spaced afterthought. And dealing with thoughts, very, very, uh, very important, obviously, because much of our mental bandwidth is taken up with useless thinking. Would you say ninety percent? Ninety-eight percent. That's a conservative estimate. <laughs> so much of it is just habit, isn't it? It's just habit. And if you try to get rid of that, you, you have it wrong because you're not thinking. It's a habit. It's more like karma, vipaka karma, which is thinking. It's just what the mind does. So there's nothing wrong with that. But, but you want to begin to see that as an object rather than be the subject. And when you see thought as an object, you can say things like, I am thinking too much. And there's no thought. Rather than trying to get it rid of thought. And then you begin to notice thought as an object more and more. You introduce ideas like that. And then you're with the breath, maybe. You're with the breath. Non-becoming. 
non-aversion. You're kind of training your whole being to just be at peace with the way things are. So if your mind is really restless, fine. Like Ajahn Chah would say, he'd say, if your, mind, if your meditation makes you peaceful, then accept it. If your meditation doesn't make you peaceful, then accept it. And quite often, a meditation which is just down the pits, you know, like really pathetic, seeming pathetic, has actually been a good meditation because you've been willing to be with restlessness. But if you quantify the meditation as a good meditation where you just blissed out and you're peaceful and went really well, time, lost track of time, then what happens when the other comes? What happens when the mind has a lot of restlessness or dullness? Then you think that's a bad one. No. Awareness knows restlessness. Awareness knows peacefulness. Awareness isn't an object. Awareness isn't an experience. And you begin to see that I can develop awareness when I feel restless. I can develop awareness when I feel sleepy or have to try. I can, feel, I can develop awareness when I want to meditate. I can develop awareness when I don't want to meditate. So another Ajahn Shah adage was, if you want to meditate, meditate. If you don't want to meditate, meditate. And that's what monasteries do. You know, we have these pujas, morning meditation, evening meditation, and no one says, oh, I don't really think I want to meditate today. Maybe tomorrow, you know, then I'll be up for it. That <laughs> doesn't compute. You come because that's the best training. And then, like, I, I certainly saw that myself in Thailand, coming to meditation, lots of, t- I mean, uh, do, do you like meditation? I mean, it's a silly question, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I love coming and sitting on a concrete floor with mosquitoes buzzing around and biting me. Oh, it's just such an, no way. Lots of times I didn't want to be there. But the training was to, okay, this is what a restlessness feels like. This is what discomfort feels like. And awareness begins to be with all these different aspects of, 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 of the flow of consciousness. It's with restlessness, it's okay. It's with peace, it's okay. It's with fear, it's okay. And we see that awareness is not dependent on this movement. Awareness is not a movement. Huh? And so, uh, with this capacity to be with all manner of things, one's intuition begins to move back into the silence of the mind rather than trying to reorganize all the objects. So two things happen. One, you begin to have refuge in awareness. And also the habits, the negative habits which are exacerbated by a sense of self and thought, they begin to, 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 to cease because you're not feeding him anymore. So let's say if, you, if, if a person suffers a lot from uh, like anxiety, something like that. Okay, for some reason there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, uh, childhood or trauma or whatever it might be, a lot of, a lot of shyness or whatever, and, and one begins to witness, so anxiety feels this way. It just feels this way, without the need to analyze it, but also without following the, the, the story, the narrative. That's different. If you follow the narrative of anxiety, you become anxious try to suppress anxiety, it comes back when, you've, uh, when you're not distracted by your suppressive uh, behaviors. But if you can witness anxiety as an object, and see, this will change, and not go to the storyline, not go to the narrative, not try to get rid of just know, oh, anxiety feels this way. Feel it in the body, feel it in the guts, feel it in the shoulders, actually witness anxiety as you would look at the stars. And that's hard to do. But if you do, 
if you do, anxiety is just this way, then the karmic uh, food for future anxiety is falling away. Because you're not feeding it. You're not, it's not a reality anymore that, is, um, that you're buying into. And so we say, make the causes now for peace in the future. Don't worry what the conditions are. If you feel crappy or great or fearful or angry, it doesn't matter really. It is as it is. But make the causes for peace now. What are the causes for peace in the future? It's knowing that this will change. This is not me. This is not mine. Huh? And they are the causes of peace. You're starting to make the cause of peace. So as I, as I say oftentimes, my own life, I had a lot of social anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of ridiculous social anxiety, things which were like totally irrational. right? And, and that became the, the object of liberation. More and more, I could see, well, if I can be aware of this, this is the road to freedom. Rather than, this is the thing, if I can get rid of this, I will be happy and free. No, 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 no. The, the, the path of awareness was with fear. So we say, we, when we talk about mindfulness, we say mindfulness with the breath. Mindfulness with fear. Mindfulness with anger. Mindfulness with joy and sorrow. Huh? It's different. It's different because the awareness is really where the true liberation lies. And so I found for myself that the, the problem with anxiety and fear was the, the fear of it, the desire not to have it. But in itself, it wasn't what it was. It was conditioned through whatever. And so that insight that it's not the fear that's a problem, it's the desire to get rid of it, that was very, very important. And, if, and once I saw that, I said, okay, this you know, you're going to have to bear with this. And so over the years, that energy has died away. Not by me getting rid of it, but just not identifying with it. Just the karma of it. And each of us has these, you know, different kinds of um, conditions which obsess us. And, and where they obsess us is through self-thinking, isn't it? Through the whole me and mind thinking. It might be self-doubt, it might be resentment, it might be guilt, all manner of things. Uh, or we just get distracted into objects. Now what we're trying to do is awaken to the present moment. So the silence I can just like, just listening to this say, the silence I know from listening to the fan is the same silence when I see the stars. It's easier the stars because the stars are beautiful. They stop the mind. This takes, takes some effort, doesn't it? What's the effort? It's to listen. Not to be calm with someone who's silent, but to listen. And then, okay, you, you learn that lesson with something like beauty. You look at a maple tree with a full sunshine on it. But don't take a picture. And then you come and you see, what, what, is that silence any different from the silence of listening to the fan? I listen to the fan. Same silence, awareness. And then I try to apply that silence to the negative emotions, to fear. And that's hard. So body awareness. Body awareness is very, very important. Very, very important. And then you start to embody this teaching, embody awareness. And you learn that through like, like breath meditation, yoga, whatever. You become much more embodied in that way. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting teaching because it's taking that which we would rather not have discontent and say that's 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 the entry 
in, into liberation, that very discontent, if you can listen to that and be with that. Okay, I'll, I'll leave that for reflection. Dhammayang dhamma uvaragatha sadhu karang dhamma se Sadhu